Hello, sweet friends, and welcome back to the Vanotrong Curious World Podcast. I hope you're having fun. Fun is actually a concept that I've been thinking about for the past few days. Essentially, there's two types of fun. There's one where we're doing something and uh, it's fun while we're doing it, but then afterwards, not so much. And then there's the other type where we're doing something, it's not that fun, but then afterwards, you feel amazing. The writer Tobias Wolf, uh, who wrote This Boy's Life, has this great quote about the concept of the world from a young person's perspective, which is, you know, when you're young, bliss is forever bliss, but pain is endless pain. And I think as you get older, as an adult, you realize, you know, through adult experiences that things do change and things aren't permanent, things aren't concrete. And depending on your life experiences, things get better or they get worse, depending on your perception. But the thing is, I mean, all that you know and all that you love and all that you hate, it's temporary. Nothing lasts forever. You can reject this idea or you can accept this idea. It's really up to you. Um, but I truly believe that those that do accept this idea, that, that actually embrace this idea of, of everything is transitional, everything is temporary, nothing lasts forever that you find happiness, that you're able to enjoy these moments. But what is happiness to you? I mean, it's really up to you. I mean, it's sort of the concept of this show. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I also, um, I get a lot is, uh, why don't you have a donate button on your website? Well, you know, for, for a couple reasons. Uh, I mean, I do have some sponsors, but they're mainly uh, friends that I know that are, I believe in their products and services, but more than anything, there are other, there, there are charities out there and there are individuals that you personally know that could probably benefit more than, than this. I mean, I, I enjoy creating this podcast. I enjoy these conversations. I enjoy meeting people and connecting with them for the duration that we have uh, when we sit down and speak to one another, whether it's somebody that I know or so, or a complete stranger. If you are considering uh, charities or organizations, one that we get into in this conversation is the New York Memory Center, which is a community-based organization that helps individuals with memory disorder. Their website is nymemorycenter.org, but, um, but we get into that in this conversation. Uh, my guest today is Hannah Raymond. She is uh, an exceptional actor, musician, teacher. Uh, I truly love this conversation uh, because we get into our personal experiences of, of travel and, and the arts and where we are in our lives. And, and Hannah was really uh, gracious enough to really open up about the experiences of her father uh, battling Alzheimer's. And um, 
I have to say it's very moving for me to hear that and I think it might be for you as well so that's all I'll, I'll say about that um, aside from all those uh, wonderful talented traits that she has she's also a, an amazing singer so I'm gonna fade you out to her recording of Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now and if you stick around and I hope you will stick around at the end of the conversation we have an impromptu, well, not we, because I don't do anything. She has an impromptu jam where she just, she performs a, a song live. So, uh, so please stick around for that. Without further delay, the lovely Hannah Raymond. Moons and Junes and Ferris wheels the dizzy dancing way you feel As every fairy tale comes real I've looked at love that way But now it's just another show You leave them laughing when you go And if you care, don't let them know don't give yourself away I've looked at love from both sides now From give and take and still somehow It's love's illusions I recall I really don't know Yeah, when I was 18 years old, I went to art school. Um, I uh, was a weaver, believe it or not. I went to this hippie boarding school in Vermont uh, as a high school student, and I learned how to weave. And I was kind of a troubled teen. I was always getting in trouble, you know, like big pot smoker, that kind of thing. <laughs> and my mom, who was from Korea and very strict, decided that, I was going to art school in Japan, and lo and behold, there was no pot or... Wait a minute, I, I, I'm a little... I understand the discipline, but that seems so so arbitrary, yet so, uh, so exact for her? Well, she knew some people. I think she talked to some friends, and she had some connections, and she found out about this traditional weaving school in Kyoto. And she thought, oh, this is good for Hana. She's an artist. She should do this. And I, she was very clever, my mother, because of course it intrigued me. And I was like, my mom wants to send me to weaving school in Kyoto for a year. How could I say no to that? You, you weren't you really? You weren't rebellious and say like, I'm not doing that. Living in Kyoto? Going to what art What was your school? impression of, of Kyoto at the time? Or did you think, I mean, were you aware? Did you think Japan was like one big place? Or? Well, you know, I my sister... Uh, who was older than me, spent a year in Japan when she was 18. So my mother thought Hana should do the same thing in a different city. So um, I loved the fact that my sister, you know, did this. And, and I was, thought it was very cool. We had friends there. We were, we're half Asian, so we have this, we have these, you know, connections to Japan, connections to Korea. And I was intrigued. And, you know, I've, I've traveled all my life, so I'd never been to Japan. And, um... It turned me on. And I was a punk rocker back then. So like just getting to know the Japanese punk rock scene was like, yeah, I wanted to do that. And 
and uh, I did that too. I, I became the uh, the Japan correspondent for Maximum Rock and Roll, this, wow. this San Francisco-based fanzine, and I made friends all over the world, and I sent records to people. Um, but you know, I was there to learn how to weave, and I wanted to learn how to weave silk. I wanted to be able to make my mother a kimono and an obi, and I did all those things. It was uh, it was wonderful for me. I, it, it changed my life forever. It taught me a lot of discipline, and uh, I, I've been a pianist since I was a little girl, but I didn't get good at practicing until after I lived in Japan. I had to sit on my behind and weave at my loom for eight hours a day. What really struck me was how uh, people dealt with each other there. Me too. It was like, you know, all for one and one for all. It wasn't one for one for one for one all the time like it is in America. <laughs> or how it seems to be in America sometimes, you know? How, how, long, how long were you there for? I was there for a year. Um, and... Uh, did you ever go home for holidays, or were you there for one straight year? I was there from February until December. I was supposed to go home in September, but I, I wouldn't. <laughs> You're too busy punk rocking out. Well, I didn't finish the uh, kimono. And I said, Mom, yeah, I was supposed to go to college because, I, you know, I got into school, to a, a liberal arts school. And I said, I don't want to come home because, you know, I didn't finish my project and I can't leave without finishing it. It's really important. It's for you, Mom. I'm making something for you. So, you know, we had this kind of push and pull relationship, my mom and me. And uh, she relented. And, yeah, I had a band by then. So I had this band called Kikigurushi, which means uh, difficult to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> One of the guys was from Boston, and the other two were Japanese. Yeah, we were having a ball. So I, I really did not want to leave Japan. I loved it there. And uh, what did you think of the food? Oh, I loved it. I love Japanese food. Uh, and I, I loved that in Kyoto, everything's very traditional and seasonal. And it was really where I learned how to cook, because my family never really taught me how to cook. Um, I, Wait, in Kyoto, when I was in Kyoto, I had a turtle. Did you, really? Did you try I that? I never had that. For some reason, when we went to Kyoto, that's where like you, that was like I had to go to a certain restaurant. Yeah. And get get the turtle, but actually it was like nine courses, and uh -huh. they all involve turtle. Whoa! Uh, yeah, I'll show you photos later. Um, but yeah, it was pretty intense, um, and it was weird. Like the the restaurant, probably as big as this space, mm -hmm. and and it, looked, it was like an office room, but nobody in there. I was like, wow, this is so. And so you'd see, you know, the, the elderly man kind of come in, come from behind the kitchen and just make it. And, like, everybody's quiet. Um, and it was just, uh, yeah, it was just weird. I mean, I didn't feel, I didn't feel weird. It was just weird by comparison to, um, you know, to what I'm used to, mm -hmm. you know, in the States. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of what you were saying in, in, uh, in terms of behavior, um, one thing that, that I've mentioned before on the show... Uh, to go to a place and everybody is respectful and kind and considerate, um, just uh, even just even on the surface, you know, uh, to me that just meant so much, and it informed me, no matter what I'm going through, uh, or what I perceive this person to be, I can treat them with respect mm -hmm. and kindness, mm -hmm. and then they'll be on their way, and I may never see them again. Right. And that. 
that uh, that really seeped into me, and I tried to carry that on when I got back here. Lovely. Yeah. So I, you know, you suspend I go, your judgment, and you you behave in a way that you would like to be treated, and a lot of times you get treated better because of that, right? It's amazing if you're with a society that does that all the time, and just. Comparing like being in boarding school and then living in this dormitory at the weaving school. There were like six of us in that room. You know, was it six? One, two, three, at least, at least four, sometimes six. And we were so civil. Nobody got in each other's way. Everybody in the school ate together, bathed together, was weaving together at the parties. It was like some strange kind of clockwork. And you really had to fit into the rhythm of that. You know, I wasn't going to make any waves. Although I have to say, I was very bad at keeping the curfew. And eventually I did have to leave. <laughs> I, found a, I found a boarding house after a couple of months. I found a boarding house across the street so I could go out late, you know, and go to the discos and go to the punk rock shows. Um, so I guess I didn't fit in completely. But for the few months that I was in the dormitory, it was really peaceful and beautiful, and I, I was amazed. What was your What was going through your mind when you were when you were weaving? Did you think like, oh well, I, I could just, you know, I'll just keep doing this? Uh, well, there were so many things that we had to do. There was, you know. You had to go through these levels. They wouldn't let me just walk in there and start weaving silk. Imagine that there are like 35 strands per centimeter. So it's like a very, very fine silk. And uh, to get there, I had to learn how to weave many on simpler looms and on thicker fabric, th thicker yarns. Um, and we had lectures, which just made my brain want to explode because my Japanese was so poor. It was very difficult. Um, uh, Did you, was there a Japanese course that you took or your mom was just like, well, just no, here's the deep end of the pool, just good luck? No, no, no. I studied some Japanese at the new school. I went to college early. I went to college when I was 17. But the Japanese was really just kind of conversational. It wasn't like, it wasn't like going to UC Berkeley. I went to UC Berkeley the summer after I came back from Japan and I memorized a couple thousand characters and really learned much more about the language at, because I, I really couldn't understand everything. I wanted to be able to read a little bit. Uh, but those experiences taught me um, that I didn't want to be, you know, a weaver or a fluent Japanese speaker for the rest of my life. Um, I loved making the, weaving the silk, you know. What, what, just to answer your question about that, like what I thought about was this thread has to be at a 45 degree angle. The tension has to be just right. How many times can I do it correctly? You know, and then my teacher would look at these four centimeters that I wove an entire day and say, it's all terrible. You have to take it out and start over again tomorrow. We're going to unweave it. So, so what I thought about was, I was, was how to get it right. And eventually, when I went through the whole experience, what I thought was, yeah, I, I miss performing. I'm a pianist. I'm a musician. I miss being with people. I'm not an artist who wants to sit alone in a room and be alone with my work for hours. And, and I have a lot of respect for my friends who are painters and sculptors who do that. But, um, and even with, like, with filmmaking, 
I, I'll do it, but I like working with my editors, you know? I like the collaborative. And um, I think I'm just more of a people person. So if I practice, it's with the intention of going and commingling and sharing my work. How did your... uh, So you knew early on that you wanted to be a performer, right? I knew that I was a performer. I had some conflicts with it as a young person. But by the time I got into college, I knew uh, this is what I... I, mean, I didn't know how else to get into school. It was the only thing I was good at. I was, I had, I had some troubles as a teenager. So it was like that was like my calling cards. Like, oh, she can play Beethoven and Mozart. You know, okay, so whatever. That's one of the good things about me. Um, and then by the time I graduated, I knew that I wanted to be a professional musician. Really, even even as a uh, when you were really young, doing and and um, practicing the piano, you just you didn't think that was something that you wanted to do later on? I knew that I would be doing it, but I had, um, I had a really painful experience when I was a toddler. I was, I could sing and I was asked to sing publicly when I was like, I don't know, like 18, 20 months, like really small. Why? No, not, not the pain. I mean, who, who does that to a kid? Well, my parents sent me to school when I was really small. This was a long time ago, before preschool was like, you know, get them. So, you know, it was a little weird. It was a, it was a, it was a traumatic experience. I, so I had to sing when I was, you know, like this little peanut. And I Did think they, I like, just... prop you up? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really remember it. Uh, but I just know that after that, my mother told me, you know, I freaked out. I got upset. And my whole personality changed. And I was not interested in performing. But I could play. I didn't sing for years because I, it, I had a, like a block against that. And I truly think that's part of the reason that I became a teacher because I help people get over that stuff. Like I understand firsthand what it means to have those fears. And by the time I was like, I don't know, 18 or 20, I got over it. I found ways and I, I, you know, I, I found myself again. But uh, I was very shy and very, very uptight about performing all through my childhood um, and my teens. It just terrified me. Wow. And and actually, but, but, but then you kept, you kept practicing though, right? I just loved playing the piano. It's just what I did. I, I just loved it. It was just a part of me. And actually, becoming an actor really, really helped me. Because, you know, when you're acting, you're really delving into those parts of human life and, and emotion and history. You have to access places and you make discoveries, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think studying acting really, like, boosted me a lot when I, uh, when I knew I wanted to devote my life to performing in some way, you know? Did it enhance how you performed as a musician? Definitely. Definitely helped. Yeah. Well, especially as a singer, because I became a singer second, and um, acting and singing have a lot to do with each other. And I personally think that any music has to do with acting. I had, I had a piano teacher who used to say, you know, you're a good actress, you have to act out this, this sonata. You have to, like, think of what, they're, what you're conveying with this nonverbal music, and what, what the phrase means, what the gesture means, what the emotion is. So it's like really great stuff, you know. <laughs> See, I was the uh, I was the opposite. I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a performer. I didn't know what that meant to me. Mm-hmm. I just knew I'd like the. 
I was very shy as a kid and performing in front of other people for some reason was uh, um, was like an escape for me mm -hmm. and I remember doing these uh, <clears throat> I had these these performances and like you know in the park and mm -hmm. my friends uh, they were in the church league. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I didn't, get, I wasn't raised religious, but I participated in, in their, in their like church play. Mm -hmm. And then when they started talking about, you know, Jesus or God, I, I, I checked out. Even as a kid, I checked out. I was like, all right. But, you know, I was on stage. I guess for me, looking back, I think it was the idea of, in normal situations, I was apprehensive of how people judged me. Mm -hmm. But if I was on stage, then I could control the situation because people are like looking at me and judging me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. That's very interesting how how you could adjust your comfort level and it allowed you to be uh, who you really are on stage. Even if it's through a character, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the that's the quintessential escape. You know, putting on that mask. As a performer, yeah. um, you know whether it is uh, whether it's a role and you're acting or or singing or playing an instrument, you're kind of channeling, uh, you know, your your emotion and your story mm -hmm. into that one vehicle. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think about be acting when you were growing up? Oh yeah, I wanted to sing and act so much, but my parents would never pay for it. I paid for all my singing lessons and all my acting lessons out of my own pocket. And I had sponsors. There were a couple of producers and people in the business, like media people who gave me money so I could take this or do that. But my mother was like, you're playing the piano and that's it. Because I love to sing. But for some reason, she really got in the way of me developing as a singer. Isn't that sad? How'd she pick the piano, though? How was she so adamant on that? Oh, I think most uh, Asian moms are like, you know, piano or violin, pick one now. <laughs> Which, does she have a musical background? My mom, uh, Vietnamese, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Vietnamese are very involved with classical music too, right? I have a great little Vietnamese student. Um, it depends. I mean, yes. Depends on the background of the family, right? Exactly. I was just going to say that. Is your, I mean, is your student uh, Americanized or like, is your yeah. parents been here for a while? Not enough time, yeah. See, my parents were, uh, were direct immigrants. In mm -hmm. fact, I, I was too. I wasn't, I wasn't born in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I had the, I had the situation where here I am in this world um, and I'm, I'm, you know, all these bright and exciting things of, you know, like you're saying, music and cartoons and, you know, anything that you'd want as a young person. But, you know, for me, for my filter as a, as a young boy, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, adventure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had asthma pretty early on and also I was kind of shy. So I, I started reading, you know, I mm -hmm. read, um, you know, just like adventure books, pirate books and things like that. So I definitely had this idea of, uh, storytelling and go and exploring, going into different worlds and things like that. Uh, I couldn't really articulate it into performing yet. It was just the idea of exercising my imagination. Right. Mainly but, because I didn't really have too many friends to play with. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Aww. Well, and, and but did did your uh, did your Asian background have anything to do with your parents like 
listening to classical music or knowing classical music. I don't know the Vietnamese No, I mean, I guess every situation is different. Not, no, not my parents. Um, In China, Japan, Korea, a lot of families have their kids playing piano or violin pretty early on, especially the girls. See, yes, my, uh, so my, my brother quite literally forced his, uh, his firstborn to play piano and he didn't want to play. He's like, oh God, you know, when this is, I could tell like when he gets of age he and they don't quit. want to do it, he's just going to hate it and he'll never yeah. touch the piano again. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Well, because, you know, he doesn't, my brother doesn't have a musical background and neither does his wife. So right. I just felt like, well, why are you doing this? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that my mother had a musical background, but it was very common for people of her generation to have their children play piano. And the, um, <clears throat> you know, the Germans brought a lot of their culture to Japan, and then it came to Korea, and uh, everybody there knew classical music. And they had pianos, they had violins. At one time, uh, it's not so much like this now, but at one time, most of the people who went to the Juilliard school were upper-class Korean girls. And, uh, what instrument? Piano. There were violinists too, but many of them were pianists. They were a bit older than me, um, but then I think also like my age too. I, I remember going to camp um, with Juilliard teachers, and there were there were so many Korean girls there. And some, you know, I don't I don't mean this to marginalize or, or put down in any way, but the, it was almost like a finishing school for some of them, because they could get married easier. A lot of them didn't continue to play after they graduated. Were they, were they Americans? Some of them could not speak English, man. I mean, there were oh. even like Chinese and Korean girls who would come here if they were very talented. They would come here as teenagers, go to North Carolina School of the Arts or other. You know, if you start young at classical music, you can be working while you're in college. You can be playing concerts, making money, and it's fucking crazy competitive. I know? don't... I, I'm familiar with this, but, but I've never really examined this. So what is the... Okay, so you bust your ass and you become, you become, you play the your instrument at an elite level, at Juilliard, North Carolina uh, School of the Arts, or, or whatever, and then you get married, and then that's it. Some people get married, and that's it. Some people get married, and they have uh, great careers. Uh, everyone's different, but just you know, if they're... no, I guess well, I guess what I'm trying to, what I've never been able to figure out is, you, like you said, you 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 do these activities. It's kind of like. Kind of getting accepted to college, right? You, you're, you're like, oh, I'm part of the yeah, math club. You're, you're like the 1%. And that means you can... Why, why would that be appealing to, to a, a future husband? Because, you know, as a guy in those, in those type of like very uh, male-oriented cultures, I'm sure like, oh, I don't care. They do, because they're cultured too. And they could be on the board of a symphony or, you know, their wife could play concerts or have a job teaching or I, I mean I'm not quite sure but I just this is bringing back these funny memories of my mom like you know trying to match me up with a guy with another Korean or half Korean family and I have to get dressed up play a piece of Mozart on some horrible piano and I just remember this one incident where I was like mom I am never ever ever doing this again uh, what did you mean by never doing it again? Did you mean, like, meeting some potential uh, husband and playing a bloody piano piece to make make them see how lovely <laughs> I am in my dress? I was like, this sucks, you know. 
Like I have to prove myself to be this little flower who can do these things. I mean, I'm into music, you know? As it turned out, like I, you know, I put my career before of all of that. I just wanted to practice. I just wanted to, you know, have a, have a great time with the music. It wasn't about getting the guy. <laughs> did your, did your mother, did she have hopes that you would marry like a, a, a Korean businessman or something? That's that... a funny question, Van. No, not at all. In fact, um, well, you know, my mother married a white guy and she had her, uh, uh, history in Korea with him because of that. It was like, I remember her telling me once, you, know, you can't marry a Korean man. It's a very, very bad situation. Don't do that. She's telling you that. Yeah. yeah. I had a Korean boyfriend and he was banned from her property. Literally. For what? He was not allowed to be, um, just for who he was. Was he, well, did he do something? He had long hair and he was a jazz musician. Oh, that's... And when she said, she said, she said, what's happening, Tom? And he said, you're happening, Dr. Kim. And that one conversation was all she needed to have. She was like, very bad situation to be involved with a Korean man. Don't so do she that. took that phrase and her brain just kind of like jettisoned to, he's going to, it's going to no, be a, a life just, of ruin. It's just his whole way of being. He played the electric guitar, he had long hair, uh, he was like, you know, very spontaneous, not, you know, I, I think, I, you know what, Van, I honestly don't know. If there, I, she's not around anymore. She died a long, long time ago. So uh, I couldn't even ask her, but um, maybe the combination of her past and his, the way he looked and dressed and the income that he had or whatever. It just seemed like a very precarious situation to her. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, he was banned. <laughs> my, uh, one of my, actually my first real serious uh, girlfriend, um, her, she was, um, one of her parents was Korean, one of her parents were Argentinian. And they absolutely hated me for for not being Korean. Oh. And well, I that's, just, that's the flip side. But I just couldn't understand it because a part of me was like, well, what about you guys? Like, I mean, I mean, I didn't say it. I mean, her, her the mom, the mom was Korean. Okay. And she hated. She was, she was just infuriated by the, the the notion that I wasn't a Korean doctor. She didn't. Even, she, I don't think she ever found out. Not that just I was a accurate. Korean, but a Korean doctor. She was so angry that she wouldn't like when I met them. She wouldn't look at me. And she kept, she would just like, she had something in her hand and she just like, like, like twisted it and it broke. Cause she, I was just like, oh my God. Like, so naturally I, I can't, I, I couldn't be relaxed in that situation. It's unbelievable, like, isn't it? How deep these things run. And I, I know women who have been disowned by their families because they've married white guys. I mean, it's, it's serious business that the, it runs so deep, and it seems to there are permutations and differences with each situation. You know, in my mom's, um, she could never marry a Korean man after she got together with my dad. They caused a huge scandal in the 50s, you know, like the late 50s in Korea. And um, it, the, the doctors literally told my father, you have to break your relations off with Dr. Kim. They couldn't tolerate it. It made everyone so uncomfortable. 
And now it's decades later, uh, things are a, a little more developed, right? But there's still some of that residual uh, tension and resistance and um, ah. there's something about preserving the clan, you know? Or, or uh, like building the clan. The fear of being exploited. Maybe. Uh, now you you said you went back. You went. You've been to Korea. I've been to Korea several times. Yeah, once I think I was the first time was when so I was about twelve or thirteen, and then I went um, while I was in Japan. I had to extend my visa, so I went there, and my father died last year, and I um. I wanted to see my relatives. I'm the only one in my family left in this neighborhood, in this New Jersey, New York area, where I used to have a whole family, and uh, I was feeling, you know, I'm gonna feel lonely. Um, I wanna see my family. So I planned a trip to Bali. I have a, a Korean-American cousin who lives uh, in Jakarta. He's an international lawyer. And I tempted him with this uh, yoga retreat, and he actually came. And so we, we went to Bali together for a week, and then I went to Korea afterwards, and I saw my uncles and aunts and um, some of my cousins, and it was great. It was really great. No ghosts? I don't mean that in the literal sense. I mean in the emotional sense. You know, one of the, I've never, I've actually never been back to the place I was born for, and it's funny, you know, when I was growing up, you know, Vietnam was just kind of conceived as like, you know, from those combat movies in the 80s mm -hmm. and they just kind of you know it's just it was like a war-torn mm -hmm. you know just a play you know yeah, yeah and exactly. I've never I, obviously that was not my perception of, of Vietnam but that was the perception of you know kids that I grew up with or whatever and then you know in the past 15 years uh, all the tank, majority of sanctions have been lifted and, and it's actually a destination right. where people go on their honeymoon or just right. to travel I, I meet so many people who who have who have gone to Vietnam they, and they love it I know, I know, I have some friends who own property there, and they loved it. They would go every year, and it was very special, very inexpensive, very beautiful. And I always, I always, it, it never fails when somebody asks me, well, they, when they determine where I was born, and then they ask me if I've ever been back, right. and, and I say no. I don't really need to explain why. I mean, I know, yeah. and like, they're like, oh, wow, well, you should definitely go. And it just... It's just funny to me. I don't. I don't receive that information with any anything other than that. But this is the failure to make any kind of potential emotional connection. Yeah. You know. I, I. I mean. I've. I've been pretty frank. I. I'm just not ready. I'm not ready to go for. It's kind just, of what's right for you. Yeah. It's just the. Uh, you know. The the traveling that I've done. I've. It's been pretty. You know. I've been very eye opening exploration of like. Oh wow. This is nice or whatever. You know. A vacation. Yeah. I think to go back there for me is just, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not ready. It's something that I talk a lot about with my brother. You know, maybe one day we'll go together. That's um, a good idea. Yeah. Then you can be there for each other. Because even if you don't remember things super clearly, how old were you when you left? I was a baby. Yeah. Well, I, this sounds a little new agey, but you know, our memories are very, very deep, and we do remember things from way, way, way back the beginnings, and physically and in other ways, and it probably will uh, spark some something in you 
that will be um, different than it would be for someone else, you know, who wasn't born there, who, was, who left later or whatever. And just, you know, it's part of your identity, right? I, I don't have that kind of feeling for Korea because I didn't go there until I was like, yeah, 12 or 13. And my mother really left her country. She didn't go back for 19 years. She wanted to go back having accomplished something, and she did. Um, she was the first Freudian out of Korea. She was like the first psychoanalyst to really, a real pioneer. And she started a study group there when she became successful. And uh, it grew from just a few people to, I think, a couple hundred. It's like, really, she, did, she made an impact. So my vision of Korea is just all through her, who she was, her identity. I'm an American, I'm mixed blood. Uh, my German side has certain, you know, other cultural effects on me. Um, so going back to Korea for me, it really was just about family and wanting to see how my, uh, how my aunts and uncles were, you know, my dad, had uh, Alzheimer's related dementia and I knew that some of them were also sick and, and my, my sister kept telling me Hana you know these people aren't going to be around forever and I thought okay this is going to be an opportunity I should go there after I go to Bali after I like chill out do some yoga and see them because I don't know how frequently I can go back to Korea it's far away it's expensive I'm making a film how you know how many times can I make that kind of journey um, while I'm involved in this big project so um, that's why I went just to be with them and to get to know my cousins again no I have family somewhere out there other than my sister you know where's your sister now she uh, lives in uh, Atlanta Georgia and she, she like it oh she loves it she's carved out a great place for herself there yeah and that's nice to know that I have a home there you know um, what was it like for you to, to grow up in, in a, um, you know, having a Korean mom and, uh, you know, a, a Caucasian father? It's, it was different then than it would be now because people really in New Jersey in a small suburb really didn't even know what Korea was, if, if, that, if that is imaginable. Our, our world is so globalized now. Back then... There were just Chinese restaurants, and your mom's not Korean, she's Chinese. You know, your mom's not a doctor, she's a nurse. It was pretty alienating, to tell you the truth. <laughs> there was a lot of ignorance in this small town that I grew up in. There were great, it was great, it was like pretty, and there were, you know, a lot of smart kids and a lot of good families. It was much safer, I think, than, than growing up in New York, like so, I could have. But you're, I mean, when you were younger, did you... Were you perceived as, um, I mean, did anybody detect that you were nobody, half Asian? Nobody knew that we were half Asian until we talked about it. And, and then I remember once, uh, the only one of the few times that my mom came to school, I remember everybody hearing that she was coming and she was walking down the hall and the whole class ran to the door to look through the little glass panel to see what she looked like. Because they knew of her, right? Oh. Because they knew there was a Korean woman. And what's a Korea? Where's Korea? What were they, what were they like, anticipating? I have no like idea. A, like a straw hat and, like, like flip-flops? 
I don't know, but it is also bringing back some interesting memories. When we, we went to Portugal when I was seven years old, and this is also like when people just didn't go to Portugal. Portugal is like 50, 40, 50 years behind the rest of the planet, you know, in, in, in globalization and, and knowing what else, and mixing. And I remember, you know, my mom was the only Asian woman probably that most of these people have ever seen in their lives. And some of them would go running in the opposite direction. They'd go, Kung Fu, Kung Fu. They like thought that she was going to beat them up or kick in them. In Portugal? Wow. It's truly bizarre. Wow. What the Asian identity was when I was a child and what it is now, you know? <laughs> wow. So I think my mom was very courageous. And uh, yeah, she, she, she really... Uh, her identity and career will just forever be interlocked for me. Which she, but she was highly educated when, oh, you, were, yes. when you were younger, right? So you oh, couldn't yes. fool her on anything, right? Like her, was her her English was, was her English was very good. I mean, she made funny mistakes, which we loved. She would like say things backwards sometimes, like horn the blow or black pitch, or she just she said hilarious things sometimes. Um, she graduated first in her class. Seoul National University in wow. front of all the guys. So she was like this crown jewel of Seoul National University and she married this white guy. <laughs> it was outrageous. Was your dad like, hey, I won the lottery? Well, my dad was his own piece of work, you know. He, uh, he had his whole background. I think they both felt like they won the lottery. You know, I think they both felt really lucky. I'm getting the impression that you, you guys moved around a lot. You mentioned a couple different cities so far. You mentioned. Well, we, my parents had to marry in America. They decided because they couldn't do it in prejudiced Germany or prejudiced Korea. So they came to New York. They lived on Irving Place. And when I was born, they lived on Amsterdam Avenue and 99th Street. And then they, you know, with two kids, and I think it was a studio, I think that picture up there might be a studio apartment, or at least, at, at most, a one-bedroom. With two kids, you know, they decided to move to New Jersey, and a couple of different uh, rental homes, and then they bought the house that, um, that I spent my childhood in. Um, and then that house was the house that... Um, my father wanted to die in, but but he didn't. So he, you know, he was there for many many years, and that's and that's the house that is the you know title of my movie, my father's house. <laughs> so that it was really one place after I was five years old. That's uh, that's the movie you're working on, or yeah, yeah. I've been I've been working on this film for four years, and it's been grueling. But um, I'm really excited about it. I'm really, uh, I'm really happy that I'm doing it. Uh, what format is it? Is it feature? Is it short? It's going to be a, a, a full-length documentary feature. And uh, I have a, a work sample now. So I'm, you know, had some interest by a big media company, which is super exciting. And um, I'm looking for completion funds. I'm, like, making a long list of all these relevant foundations and other places it's you know I'm learning what it means to make a movie it's uh pretty overwhelming but it's worth it because I really I became an activist because of my dad's illness and um I really feel like uh 
people like you and me who have art in our lives and can, can present art, we can make a difference. That's what I've been told by the scientists and doctors that I've interviewed too. You know, that to, to reach a larger audience of people who don't know about these diseases, um, it's not going to come from them writing their scientific reports. You know, it comes out in the news, but how many people really read the newspaper today? Right. Or if you, I mean, anything, I mean, we live in 24-7 media coverage, and we're just bombarded with this one thing, and then we just kind of move on once that is oversaturated. Yeah. Um, what did your father have? He had Alzheimer's-related dementia, but that's actually part of the film, is finding out what he actually had. And I had his... He, was, he wasn't diagnosed, or he was, he was misdiagnosed? Well, the only way you can really diagnose Alzheimer's disease is, is by a brain autopsy post-mortem. So you can't, you know, you can get pretty close. <laughs> we, we, we've diagnosed you, oh, too bad, a little late, but... Well, and that, that, it's a very mysterious disease. They are still defining what Alzheimer's disease is. And there are dozens of other dementias. Once my dad got sick, this became my journey because I wanted to know um, what's wrong with my father. First, a neurologist told me he doesn't have Alzheimer's. He might have mild cognitive impairment. He's fine. I was like, he's fine. You know, he, he's getting lost going home. He's giving all his money away. He's like acting like a lunatic. He's, he's crazy. We, I need to help my father. And then two years later, one of the doctors said, your dad has Alzheimer's disease. And I was like, wait a second. Somebody told me that he definitely doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. What's going on here? So I started to look into what Alzheimer's disease is. And uh, it's still being defined. It's really uh, amazing what this whole world of dementia and Alzheimer's uh, is and what I've learned from it. And I want to know more. I want to share about it. I want people, I don't want people to go through what I went through. What, uh, what does cause it? Or what, is the, what are some misconceptions about it? There, you know, there have been uh, debates about whether the amyloid plaques or these tau proteins the scientific things that are discovered in the brain are what uh, is happening. But what actually causes it, they're getting a little bit closer to saying, well, okay, it can be affected by diet, by exercise, by using your brain, by performing certain kinds of tasks. What causes Alzheimer's? How do you prevent it? How do you treat it? How do you cure it? Is it true that, that coffee helps prevent it? Is preventative with that? I read that over and over yeah. again, so I never stopped drinking coffee. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, and uh, one of uh, um, one of the, the older women in, um, that were, she was a friend of, of, uh, of the family, and I hadn't seen her in a while, and all, all of us kids kind of lined up to give her a hug. I mean, I knew she was sick, yeah. and I knew, they told me she had Alzheimer's. I, I, I didn't know what that meant. I knew, right. I knew that it was it was cognitive um so i lined up to give her a hug and then i just thought it'd be silly and i went back in the end of the line to get another hug and she thought i was another kid so that was that was that scared the shit out of me because that's when it, I, I just remember like wow she lost her mind like she doesn't she's not even on this in this room she yeah. thinks i'm a completely different kid imagine living with someone without a memory for like 
five years, or 10 years, or 15 years, where you are just in the moment with them every step of the way. They might remember something at certain stages from when they were four or six, or like my dad started singing the same song over and over and over and over again, a song that he knew when he was a teenager in his 20s. But it's, it's truly harrowing to be living a life with a person who doesn't have a memory, doesn't have a functioning memory. It, it, is a, it is cognitive decline, but it also it is a physical illness because the brain is, you know, the control center of your whole body. And there are seven stages of Alzheimer's. And the, the last stages are not just your brain. Your entire body starts to deteriorate. People don't really want to talk about it or know about it or they won't know about it because they don't have this experience being with a person like this but it is not just a cognitive ailment you um, you cannot walk or feed yourself or talk or do anything it's like having a little baby who is 90 years old and you have to change them and you know make sure they're okay that they don't fall or if they're having a hallucination or a fit you need to be there it's really um, it's a really unbelievable journey to go on the dementia Alzheimer's journey and I, I, I know that one of the reasons people don't know all the details is because caregivers get so exhausted after the person finally dies they just kind of want to get away from it and have a life without Alzheimer's now, there are a lot more young people who have it in their lives, so they have a little more energy to try to spread the word and raise awareness. But it's, um, it's an epidemic. It's just not as, uh, not as talked about in the general public as cancer or AIDS or other diseases that, that you know, don't mostly inflict really old people. Right, There's this, uh, this is almost a uh, dismissive attitude of our society of oh yeah I had a I had a my grandpa had it and he was not and he was nuts he had Alzheimer's and and you know just it's almost like sweeping under the rug in terms of yeah um, you know uh, he was checking out anyway he was he was seventy or eighty or ninety or whatever um, well and you know we uh, it doesn't fit in with our model of society right now we all want to stay young forever we all want to look young forever we all want to be young. And uh, we will keep wearing young people's clothes and doing young people's things and well into our Getting injections 60s and in our faces. 70s. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but uh, aging is inevitable and uh, embracing it could be a better thing to do than trying to run from it and pretend that you can get away from it. You can't get away from dementia or Alzheimer's yet. <laughs> there is no cure or any really proven uh, prevention. I mean, there's more known about that now, and I think everybody who practices a really healthy lifestyle and reads about it and finds out what they can do to keep their brain active um, can probably stave it off. Uh, but I think we need to shift our mindset as a society in order to fend off this impending, you know, tsunami that's going to really affect our whole society. It's um. I hate to sound so uh, mercenary about it, but th this is what my life has become. When you look at the statistics, like I brought up statistics to share with you. I brought up one of the cards 
that we, we're going to use in one version of my film. Um, about 5.1 million people are living with Alzheimer's disease, and the other statistic is that like 16 million of them are their families and caregivers who are taking part in the Alzheimer's epidemic. So it's not just 5.1. Think of it as 20 million people who are affected by this. Um, it's the, every 67 seconds, someone in the United States develops the disease or another uh, dementia. Alzheimer's disease is the third leading cause of death in the United States for people over 65. In 2014, the direct cost to American society for caring for those with Alzheimer's will total an estimated $214 billion. And uh, they, uh, they estimate, uh, the people who come up with these st statistics with the Alzheimer's Association and other organizations, that by 2050, if we keep doing what we're doing right now, it'll be like a trillion dollars of debt. What do you, do you know what other countries do? They are doing better than we are, but there are still emergencies. I think in Japan and England, they have some pretty bad situations, but their, their approach and of course, you know, the way that they deal with money as governments is a little different and the way they deal with healthcare. Right, I was gonna say, yeah, it comes down to our, our healthcare system and, and, and the way we view, the way we view medicine. It's a business here. Right. It's a way of making money. So, if it's a way of making money, um, then I'm going to fight tooth and nail because you're trying to reform and take away some of my money. Well, you need a drug that you can sell. So, uh, 99.6 of all the Alzheimer's drug trials that have been done have failed. Okay, that's pretty bad. You know, billions, billions, billions of dollars fail, fail, fail. And then it takes 12 years to get a patent on a pharmaceutical drug. You have to do all these trials first on rats and mice, and then you get around to humans. I mean, it just takes years to have a drug. And then by the time you have it out there, you gotta charge a lot of money, right? I remember reading in the paper, there was a woman who, like me, was taking care of her dad until he died, and the cost to Medicare was a million dollars for this one person. Wow. So when I read things like this, and I imagine what things are gonna be like for me when I'm 60, 70, 80, 90, I think, what a world we're going to be living in. So I feel like very happy kind of relinquishing my acting career. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I want to keep singing. I, I keep teaching. But I thought, you know, I don't really need that hot new role because I just keep thinking about Alzheimer's disease. And if, if, if we don't get together as people and do something about this problem, it's really not going to go away. And, you know, we need places to go and... Say I don't have kids, you know, and I don't have a family taking care of me like my dad did. How am I going to live the end of my life? What if I do get Alzheimer's disease or dementia or what my father had? He actually had hippocampus sclerosis, which is kind of like a little secret in the movie because I had his brain donated and, you know, the doctors are telling me he had Alzheimer's disease. He actually didn't have Alzheimer's disease after they looked at his brain. Oh, thank you, Miss Ryman. Your donation is so valuable to us. Now we know that all these people out there who think they have Alzheimer's might have something else. So what is Alzheimer's? They're still making the discovery. Um, can there anything be done once they detect it in its early stages? Is, can, it be, can it be stopped? Can it be, can, can, is it, There's, I, I imagine it's not irreversible. 
well, I mean, I, it is. That's I, I'm sorry. I, my I, phrasing was wrong. I, I uh, you know, I spent my Sunday night uh, watching the fifth annual neuroscience symposium. <laughs> That's what I do with my spare time. I've become what, what, a uh, geek. What channel was that aired on? It's on YouTube. I like I track down scientists and doctors. I'm looking for for things to point me in a way that I can be say yes. There's something good that's reported and not like. All the trials have failed. We're failing, we're failing, we're spending millions, life sucks. You know, it's just so depressing the more you read. So I read two things that really got me excited. And one was um, from a specialist in Boston who said she's starting a trial with human beings, a double-blind study, um, to, it's not early stage, pre, uh, pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's. So they... It's going to be on people who have, they can detect the amyloid um, and they're going to treat them uh, to see if they can prevent it from happening, like you were saying in the early stages. Mm -hmm. First they had to find ways to detect that people actually could have it without symptoms. You know, that was like the catch-22. It's not until it starts to happen that you know somebody has it, but it starts being created in the body long before it's symptomatic. Um, so there seems to be a trial in place which is going to address that. And the other thing that made me excited was there was a, this neuroscience symposium um, told me about a, a scientist doctor who has been doing three month long brain clinics, like working out your brain at his clinic. And like a it, luminosity university. Yeah, yeah. People are meditating twice a day. They're doing exercises for their brains. They're engaging act in activities in a whole set of disciplines that he set up to make people's hippocampuses grow instead of shrink. So the thing about the hippocampus, the memory center of your brain, there, there are two. Um, is uh, it shrinks, it sclerosis as your memory. That's what happens and makes your memory worse. But it can grow. That was what his studies showed. So this was hugely exciting for me. And I immediately wrote him an email. Uh, but when I, I looked at that on, on Sunday, but then when I wrote the letter on Wednesday, I noticed that Norexpand, his clinic, had closed. And there was a letter to his patient saying, uh, due to the changes in Medicare, we were funded almost completely by Medicare, you know, we're facing some really serious financial setbacks and we've had to close. So this is the state of things. The, the two things that made me really excited that I could find, um, one is a trial that could take a few years, uh, but she, she said it's the, the brightest light in 10 years of, of trials and experiments that she's hopeful about, an Alzheimer's uh, expert, Risa Sperling. And the second one, seemed like it was going on a great track and now it has no funding. So that's not exactly <coughs> hopeful, but there, there seem to be things being put into place that can help this disease get better in our lifetime. You know, it's like, I, I don't know if you know about the history of cancer, but I watched a doc about cancer. So uh, I've seen it. I'm from, I'm, I'm in a, from a, a layman's perspective, I, I'm, and, and I'm quite intimate with the cancer has to my family so um, uh, 
Are you suggesting that it's related in terms of... No, I just saw this three-part series on PBS called um, The Emperor of All Maladies. And they really... It's a book. It's right. a book, yes. and it was made into uh, a Ken Burns documentary. And it was wow. excellent. Three parts, two hours each. It was, like, exhaustive. It was great. And it really went through the past hundred years of cancer research, discovery, development, all the ups and downs, how the drugs changed, how one thing was really popular, and then, you know, five years later it was banned from the treatment list, like um, mastectomy. When women had uh, breast cancer, 50s, 60s, 70s, I think it was in the 70s, forgive me if my facts aren't right, but at one point when um, the treatment was introduced, when treats, treatments were introduced, women just had to get their breasts lopped off and surrounding tissue, surrounding musculature, that was what they did. They just cutting women's breasts off. Another uh, doctor made some discoveries that only the lump had to be removed. So there was the complete radical mastectomy and there was a lumpectomy. Ten years later, nobody's having mastectomies. They're having lumpectomies. So there's a progression in treating diseases and how, uh, how, we, how we take care of people who are dying of these fatal illnesses. What we're doing now with Alzheimer's might be very different than what we're doing in 10 years. Namenda and Aricept are the two medications that are supposed to uh, slow down the uh, progression of these diseases. Most of the people I talk to tell me they don't work. So there are your drugs that have their patents and people are spending however many dollars per pill and it's not working. Or there are these psychotropic medications like my father took because he was throwing temper tantrums and crying all day or like, you know, threatening to hit me with his stick, <laughs> his walking cane. That had nothing to do with Alzheimer's. <laughs> we had to do something to help him. So, you know, the pharmacologist gives him these... these uh, pills for anxiety, depression, and in huge letters on the, on the label it says this should not be administered for patients with dementia. Now I'm reading online that these pills can actually make your dementia worse. What if, have you uh, read anything about um, like nootropics or psychoactive drugs and like... Uh... You mean like mushrooms? Well, not just mushrooms. I mean like ayahuasca or DMT. I wonder actually... if they would help Alzheimer's. That would be a wonderful thing to try. They well, help depression. Uh, they, yeah, exactly. They've they've been known to help depression. They've been known to help uh, uh, people with uh, post traumatic stress disorder. Um, what a great suggestion, Van. Um, what a great suggestion. And I think they they must be there must be um, some online data about that. I mean, just I mean you think about it, and it, I mean it's all I mean they go to I mean it's all cognitive. So I I don't think it, I mean it can't possibly hurt, right? I mean, in terms of, in terms of just providing an outlet to, or, or maybe there, there's there's some sort of blockage or some cerebral some something is ab abnormal in the cerebral, right? So I mean, those psychoactive drugs. I mean, it can only help. I would imagine. Not only. But again, we we have such a paranoia, para, paranormal pa paranoia about drugs in this in our in our society so it that's an uphill battle to say we have um, a paranoia about drugs that are illegal or that haven't been given the stamp of business approval by big pharma but but all the big pharma drugs we're supposed to buy 
and then we find out that they can actually be harmful. And, you know, they're making business off of them, but they can actually be harmful. I don't really want my film to go in that direction to try to polarize people or issues, but I want to present an argument which would actually fit in very well with your saying, you know, people are treated, people who have depression are treated with ayahuasca. I have a friend who, you know, he's living proof of that, um, that's successful. Uh, because I, I want to look more at where this all came from, you know, um, how, where do memory order disorders come from? Uh, can we please address them as mental illnesses and not just a neurological problem with plaques and tangles? Right. Like the body, mind, and spirit, they're related to each other, they affect each other. Sometimes when I talk to doctors, they would, they would say immediately, oh, the neurological disorder came first and then people get mentally ill. What if they were mentally ill first and that, you know, they affect each other? Right. I'm not an expert, I'm not a scientist or, or a psychiatrist, but could we explore this? You know, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, is that a neurological disease? It's a mental illness, right? People commit suicide right. sometimes, or they commit homicide. Um, I think my dad had a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if everyone is like this, but many of the people in the world of dementia and Alzheimer's treatment I've talked to, they, they don't want to address these dementias as mental illnesses because mental illnesses are so, uh, they're bad. They're like marginalized. It's like, let's not talk about that. Lock them up. Like, remove them from society. We don't want to do it. deal or, with them. Or like, you know, oh, you know, some guy just shot 12 school children. Let's pray. And then He's nuts. So to say somebody's nuts means like he doesn't belong in our society. If we say he's nuts and we remove him from our society, then our society's whole again. Exactly. How can we treat these mental illnesses, all mental illnesses, and really be there for people so that they don't pick up their stick and whack other people? They don't shoot people. You know, not just praying and, and, and mourning, but looking a little deeper into, you know, what all of that is, how they affect each other, and uh, yeah, how we can prevent it as people, not just with drugs and with uh, health and other, th other things, but behavioral, you know? In your uh, experience and, and, and your investigation in, into this, uh, did you find that uh, other families or, or other people who had to deal with this, or even yourself, um, what was your what was your take on in terms of uh, spirituality versus religion in terms of mm. uh, afterlife uh, in terms of you know how we're existing currently? Oh gosh, I gotta show you this book. Okay, so I met this woman um, in my journeys with Alzheimer's. Um, I think it was like December before my dad died in March. I was very nervous about his dying and I didn't really know you know I wanted I wanted as much as I could to prepare for my father's death and uh, most people would just tell me you can't do that Hannah just forget about it do what? But prepare? prepare for someone's oh. death you'll never be prepared that's so, a very Western way of thinking so I started investigating the spiritual sides and this lovely woman introduced me to Deborah Forrest who wrote a book called Symphony of Spirits and she was a 
scientist and a nurse and not, I shouldn't say a scientist, she had a scientific mind. But when she was um, in her 20s, she became a nurse at this facility where people died. They either died there or they would go home to die when they were about to die. And it was her job, you know, she had to make her living, learn, uh, you know, learn her, her, her medical training there. And she started seeing spirits. She started seeing spirits uh, emerging from the dying bodies. And she thought, Like you know, in a movie? Like, like vapor? Like in a movie. She, would, she, she thought she was out of her mind. She was crazy. She needed to see a psychiatrist. This is not right. You know, what's going on? And uh, the other nurses who were older than her, um, they were all of Native American descent. And they had thousands of years of their own spiritual training to see people off to, you know, uh, death, the other, the, the, the next life or the next place or what we call the end, whatever. And she learned a lot from them. Um, every chapter of this book deals with a different person who is about to die or was very sick. Most of them have Alzheimer's or dementia, so most of them don't have memories or could not really function in society well. But it really, really helped me to read this book before I lost my dad. And I felt, I, I had, she was kind of became a counselor to me. She let me call her up whenever I wanted and we've become friends. Um, really influenced that period of my life and I I do believe there's a very strong spiritual aspect to death and we need to address that um, that having beliefs about what happens next and who we are as spirits you know uh, energy doesn't die bodies die but where does that energy go when my mom died I remembered I, I don't know why I believed but I like I felt this punch in my stomach and I was like, my mom's energy is coming into me. Even if it was just my imagination or my thoughts, I really believed that. It was like her spirit came into me and I became stronger. I didn't want to let her down. I, uh, you know, she died in a car accident, so it was like a shock and I was pretty young still. So I, I feel some kind of connection to that, uh, that conversation and I want that to be explored because it helped me uh, have a much more peaceful time with my dad than I may have if I didn't think about those things when he breathed his last breath, you know? Do you still feel his energy? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I, I feel like, uh, well, yeah, more than anything, I just feel like I don't want to let my folks down, that they had some mission in their lives that I want to carry on. You know, they were both doctors. They had... My dad had some very strong ideas about dementia and Alzheimer's and uh, my mother and her whole psychoanalytic approach, you know, how the mind uh, influences things and how mental illnesses influence things. So, you know, uh, they're with me like that. I don't really have any proof about their wispy spirits entering my body and that would be kind you of far-fetched. A, a, a cane in the back of your head. Uh... <laughs> uh there's something to it. There, there. I really think there is. I also read the Tibetan Book of the Dead to my dad, and he, he was an atheist, you know? He was looking up at me and saying, this is very important, 
I remember this. And yes, it's very important that you're telling me this. It was very interesting. He, you know, he, he didn't believe in all of that crap, but as he got closer to the end, he was seeing people, seeing my mother in the room. I remember once he, uh, I offered him some water. He wasn't eating. He was only drinking a little bit of water to stay alive, enough to stay alive. And he said, there are some other people in the room. Don't forget them. There's nobody there. He was calling people's names. He was connecting with people. He was somewhere else. And Deborah would tell me, your dad has one foot in that world and one foot in this world. He's not sure when he's going to go. And it took him a long time to die. I was like, Dad, do you know when you're going to die? <laughs> he wouldn't answer. He just wants both, he wants his feet where he wants his feet, I guess. And he called it. He called it when we were ready, when we were all ready, and when he was ready, he called it. So, it, you know, I guess my film wants to not only open up a discussion about Alzheimer's and mental illness, but also deal with end of life mm -hmm. and how terrifying it can be to Western minds. And just, you know, let's... Let's look into that, how death can be this beautiful, peaceful, loving thing. And it's not something that we should run from. We shouldn't run from old age and death. It's not really quite as bad as we all think it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think what, you know, what we were discussing earlier in terms of you know, people you know, wanting to be young forever is because it's that fear of the end. And we always will fear the unknown. You know, are we just a battery, and when the, the power's up, then we're gone? Or do we go to heaven? I mean, we either... Are we being judged? All these things that go through people's minds. And, and, you know, you have faith, and then you have doubt. But it can be a scary thing. I mean, naturally. You know, I, when I was understanding the concept of death when I was a child, it was just... It was pretty scary. You know, I, I was thinking, you know... A white-haired man with a beard was gonna judge me, or I was thinking if I if I did something, if I stole some candy, then I would be hit with a pitchfork for eternity. Oh boy! Uh, yeah, these things. I mean, I'm that would be painful. <laughs> it's all hot, and you know. But also, this this concept of forever. Like, who, I don't know who gave us this idea of like forever. Um, but I think people kind of adopt these things and and, and are, are very fearful of of the end of transitioning of you know whether it's life or whether it's you know the fact that you're not a young person and maybe you're not as mobile but you have grace and you don't you know we tend to we tend to look at the things that we subtract in our life rather than things that we could potentially gain because we don't know what we'll gain it's very easy to quantify things that we don't have anymore whether it's whether it's our hair whether it's our you know strength or wealth but we can't we can't gain wisdom we can't gauge our wisdom because we don't have it yet. That is a very very astute observation. Yeah, and then the concept of losing our mind, our memories of everything in our brain is just so terrifying. In that same circle of thought, that let's just not go there with Alzheimer's. Some doctors have been quoted as saying it's worse than dying. And what does that mean? Like it's really bad to die. Worse than dying. Thanks, doctor. <laughs> it's like a living death. I mean, this is truly pessimistic negative thinking. And I, I'm not going to say it's like a bowl of cherries to be living with a person with Alzheimer's, but my dad was still a person. 
and he was wonderful to shoot video of. He was engaging and he said incredible things and you know I think it looks like a living death to some people if they are locked up in nursing homes and don't have friends or relatives or anybody caring for them right. and, and they don't have a connection and they will forget everybody they will forget their own sibling their own uh, children and their siblings and their spouses if there's not uh, constant connection but it's a little unrealistic to think that we all can live with our uh, dementia ridden family members uh, constantly like what I did I don't think most people could do to go and visit you know every week for seven years two three times a week be in charge of a staff of seven people like all I mean it's it's a lot uh, it, it can just tear your life apart. There are a lot of people out there doing it, but most people can't, or they will have to leave their jobs or put everything in jeopardy, you know? I mean, I'm ima I can only imagine the, the emotional toll that it must have took. It takes that on every person who has a, has a loved one who's in this situation, yeah. It's very, very hard. Um, but I think the attitude that it's like a living death or worse than dying, I think we need to turn the page on that and go someplace else. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a little, uh, it's a little sad to hear that from a medical professional to say that. Um, that's their it's almost orientation. That's almost condemning the, the state. That's why it's been so hard to get the movement on this disease going because of the attitudes about aging and about uh, mental illness and memory loss. But um, on a brighter note, uh, I've spent time at, at the charity of my choice where I may or may not become a board member. I just was asked to become a board member, which is pretty thrilling. I've never been a board member anywhere. <laughs> Do you have a gavel? I mean, how does that work? It's called the New York Memory Center. And they're in Brooklyn, and they uh, they treat people with memory loss uh, with art, with with poetry and singing and instruments and dance and um, actors and musicians and it's just amazing how their quality of life is improved. And what's the uh, what's the website, or in case people want to check that out, or how can they I, find information? On I this? think it's. Let me check. New York Memory Center. I'll, I'll Google it right now. Um, it's not MYMC because whenever I do that, I don't get it. NYMemoryCenter.org, and it's in Park Slope. Um, and I'm, I think I'm the only filmmaker who's been invited to shoot there. And I've, I've seen women stand up and sing songs from beginning to end. People who are very disoriented. And they, they're expressing themselves, you know. They leave feeling better. How often do they have events? For the, is it for the public? It's, it's like a daycare. No, it's not oh. open to the public. But it's, uh, it's a daycare um, situation. People don't live there. They come there every day. They have some funding. And then they have 
clients who pay. They're about to open their second center in Bushwick now, and they featured me as their artist. Uh, this was a public event, and some of, some of my students actually came, some of my friends. <laughs> And it's in my movie. We, we, I had a crew there, very small crew, but uh, we shot some footage and, um, you know, these, uh, there are people in wheelchairs, there are people with walkers, but one of them got up and started dancing with her walker. Wow. And it, it's just so uplifting. Uh, there's a movement spreading around the United States now on the care end that's separate from the scientific, you know, billion dollar pill end, which I'm not saying is the wrong thing. The cure is important. Science needs to find their answers, but while millions and millions of people are getting sick and 67, every 67 seconds someone's diagnosed with this, we need to deal with the, the care end, being there for these people. And the creative arts seems to be a really wonderful way to take care. And uh, one of the statistics was uh, that if you learn a second musical instrument, you'll cut your chances of having Alzheimer's in half. Oh, whoops. So I'm like Oops, playing really. four instruments now. <laughs> I'm starting to teach myself as many instruments as I can. I'll just stick to multiple cups of coffee. <laughs> so how did that change your perception in terms of now? We talked a little bit earlier about uh, you know about you know career and, and acting and so forth, but I guess in terms of you know when we talk about like turning the page in terms of perspective on, on life and the world. I mean, how did that how did that affect you? Right now, I feel like I'm going to be involved in this cause for the rest of my life. It may sound insane, but I I don't see myself going in the other direction. I want to open a New York Memory Center in, in Greenwich Village. I want to have a memory arts cafe. I've been talking to people about it, public libraries, and I found a wonderful performance space. Um, I'm going to do a fundraiser for my film on June. Saturday, June 6th at 8.30 p.m. at um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Manhattan on 11th Street and 7th okay. Avenue. Yeah, I'm like, I just talked about it with the pastor this morning. Um, it's like, it's so magical. It's like, it's, it's a large part of what I want to do with my life now. I don't want to stop playing music or performing, you know, uh, just just writing and doing what I want to do. I, I would love to be in another person's movie again. Like, I love acting, but I just don't have time. I, and until I finish my father's house, I feel like I really have to focus on that. And I'm running out of money. So, I have, you know, I've, I've put, like, most of my inheritance and all of my money into it. I need to do this fundraiser in order to continue. Um, yeah, like I said, this I'm very lucky that a big media company is interested in it, and they've asked for some work samples. I had some great editors working with me. Uh, one guy worked on *A Beast of the Southern Wild*, so I'm like hiring top pros, and I'm I'm excited about it. But um, it's it's kind of tough going. Uh, it's just yeah, it's really really changed my life. I, I I'm yeah, I've, I've like become this machine that's just spending all my time thinking about this problem. It's not just my problem; it's everybody's problem. They just don't know yet. Yeah, but I feel like um, I feel like before, uh, uh, just speaking on my end, I think yeah, before yeah. Uh, you know when you're when you're a performer and you're an aspiring artist, it's you're fueled on ambition. Ambition is great because it, it fuels that engine quickly, and it's just you're just burning, 
uh, you know, you just, regardless if it's fueled by uh, uh, insecurity or fear yeah. or just even desire, you know, yeah. you're just burning, you know, burning fuel, you just go as fast. Um, it sounds like to me, <clears throat> your uh, y- the engine is moving by something else, something almost like love. Yeah, my love for my dad. And my mom, too. It's just been so many years since I saw her, you know. Yeah, I loved my dad a lot. And I really, I saw him suffer so much. It, 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 I needed to do something about it. And the, the thought of, of millions of people doing what my dad was doing or being how my dad was being, it was so mind-boggling to me. I couldn't handle it without doing something. Yeah, I guess that's it. And, you know, love is a great thing. (laughs) If you can make love a part of your life every day and really have it in your life and not forget it and have that fuel you. I mean, I think that that performers, there's, you know, there's a love of the literature. There are things in there, love of the music, love of... Sure, yeah, I was more commenting on the pursuit. Yeah. Of, uh, of a golden fleece that yeah it's pretty idealistic right um, I think well we all make we all make choices in our life personal and professional and we make choices of where to live and we make choices of who we want in our lives and I think it really boils down to not just comfort but what's important to us um, and which is a segue to what I always ask people when I that, that come on the show is what is happiness to you what is happiness to me? Yeah, and what's the difference between happiness and joy? Um, happiness is fleeting. It's not something you can really hang on to and keep forever. It comes and goes, uh, to me anyway. And uh, I would say that when I was doing this recording session with my dad. He sang this song over and over again, and I said, okay, I'm learning the piano part. And we rehearsed it, and then you know, I got my crew together, and we decided to shoot it. I was pretty happy while we were doing that together, in that moment, while he was singing with all this expression. And even though he couldn't remember what day it was or what his address was, he knew every word of the song from beginning to end and sang it with such expression. And, you know, I practiced and I felt like I did okay with the part. That's one form of happiness. Um, being with a guy I really love and feeling that, like, magic. You know, you, you can't have it. It's not going to last the whole week. You'll see each other again, whatever. But happiness. Uh, I think it's really, you know, a state of mind and some treasured thing that comes and goes yeah I've learned that uh, uh, three words that I always say to myself in any situation that I'm in no matter what the situation is nothing lasts forever and I say that in times of complete euphoria and I say that in times of true darkness right it doesn't last forever and you know that's typically except received as 
oh, what do you mean? Don't say that. You know, let the good times roll. You know, embrace what you have now. Impermanence, more of a Buddhist kind of perspective. But nothing. When I when I think of nothing lasts forever, is all of it. You know, all your love and joy and anger and pain and insecurity, all of it. It won't last. Mm. So accept this moment and take what you want from it. And it's up to you to take the negative or it's up to you to take the positive. Right. But it won't last. Uh, it won't last. Um, and, but there is an empowerment to that, at least for me. And, and knowing that, that, that we're all, that, you know, there are many chapters in, in, in this life, you know, and maybe this one isn't working out for you right now, but it won't last. Well, when you came in uh, earlier today into my apartment, um, you mentioned something about uh, making good things about out of bad things that have happened, like finding the silver lining, okay? I think that's another form of happiness, you know? Um, you can have a bad time in the entertainment industry, you know, like have breakups or whatever, and make something from it. Write a poem, uh, write a song, tell a story, move to the next place, decide that you want to do something with meaning in your life, rather than just, just ambition. You can still be ambitious, but that can't be what, uh, what drives you in your activities, you know? Um, I was so happy when you said that, that you, know, you wanted to make good things of the, of the misfortunes that you faced, because that's really what I have been trying and am trying to do with my situation with my dad let make something really good and productive out of it instead of letting it conquer me and make me feel like I'm disempowered or, you know, I don't want to think about the future because I might get Alzheimer's disease and I'm going to die just like my dad. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot of people think like that. Yeah, it, there yeah are There's a genetic argument. Right, and it's quite possible. I felt this, I used to, you know, my, um, you know, for the, exactly, I felt the same way in terms of the medical ladies in, 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 uh, in my life or in my family yeah uh i used to feel like oh if i do this i'm gonna get sick if i you know do this this all those things are are possible maybe it's unlikely but so what do you so so what are you gonna do you know what about life what about what about sunrises what about you know children playing or or going to see a movie or taking a walk these things that's gonna stave off your illness more than anything else you know i reconnected with a with a friend recently and um you know and i i, I did when i when I, <clears throat> when I saw her a few years ago she was in pretty bad shape uh, emotionally she just um you know she wanted uh she was just uh she later confessed to me that she was suicidal and i i knew that she was bad i didn't know she was that bad so i had seen her in a few years I saw her uh, last week, mm-hmm. and she was just like, you know, it was like, oh, you look great, and you know, we were catching up and stuff, and she said, look at me, I'm so fat now, and then I said, so I started laughing, I said, that's the only thing that you can complain about in your life, <laughs> that you're f- like, oh, I'm fat, I'm like, that's, that's beautiful, to me, that's, that's amazing, <laughs> and compared to where you were before, right, that's amazing, because right, you're nice. fat, so what, that's like, nice. so what? Just and you know what? Maybe you're gonna eat something tonight, and you're gonna be mad at it. Don't don't judge yourself. I mean, you could do things to you know whatever, do things to, to change, but don't be so hard on yourself. 
recognize the, you know, the hill that you just climbed yeah. to where you are now. I mean, uh, anyway, I wanted to share that with you. Yeah, that's lovely. That's really lovely. You'd make a good teacher. <laughs> now, students respond really well to that. It reminds me of this little girl that I was teaching last night who was beating herself up. And, you know, some teachers will just encourage people, like, you could have been a friend who just was like, yeah, you should really lose some weight. <laughs> you know, you're, you look so much better the last time I saw you. You were suicidal, you know? You were like, drugged up, but you were skinny. Yeah, like, you know, that's the way to go. Because not only will people listen, but you can continue the dialogue, you know? You kind of cut things off. And, and, the, and, and people get isolated if, if you encourage them to beat themselves up. Most of the time we don't even know that we're doing that when we encourage people, you know? I think people are motivated so much stronger uh, at, when, they, when they believe in themselves and when they love themselves. Um, you know, I know there's other schools of thought in terms of uh, athletics or arts in terms of like, you know, in terms of like, you know, being militaristic in terms of discipline, perhaps. I just know for me and how I want that information received is it's so much better with positive reinforcement. Totally. And I'm 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 speaking from from the other end of getting mm-hmm. such negative reinforcement um, through my life, and and I, I don't think it did any good. It, did, did you have to, any, op, to operate on fear? Did you have any acting teachers who operated in that way? Through through fear of like discipline. Yeah, I had. Um, it's funny, I had one teacher I, in New York, uh, I won't say his name, uh, I'll, I'll tell you his name after, after I turn off the yeah. mic. He told me, he said, you're great, I don't, well thank you, he said, you, I see a lot of potential in you, but you really need, you should really, in terms of your career, you should really start uh, uh, studying martial arts, so that way you'll get cast that way, and then you can do your Sam Shepherds and your right. Glenn Gary, Glenn Rosses, and stuff I like that. I find an entree. With yeah, type. I mean, I just felt like, well, at the time, I just felt like you, you saw me, I mean, you saw the real me, because I, you know, you're my teacher, yeah. and I performed for you, so I felt like that's, you know, I was very vulnerable, and you, you know, you've seen this side of me, and that's all you see of me, you did a, like a, you did a scan of me, and that's so, I, I'm a, like, it came from a good place, right. but at the time, I just felt like, I just felt like fuck you, you yeah. know. That's that's how you're gonna perceive me, and yeah. uh, and then so he kind of so he was he took the attitude of like a like a mean coach, because mm. like I see a lot of potential in you. I'm just like yeah, I'm not turned off because of that one thing of like, you don't see me as a human being. You just see me as like you know if you do this this and this, I think your career will do well. And I was just turned off by that, and I just felt like if you saw me as a human being and wanted to enrich my life as a human being and I think I would have approached his advice a little differently. Right, right. Um, well, maybe he was speaking out of what he would have done for himself or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I mean, that's years ago, and I don't judge yeah. anymore. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I, I think we go. You have to. You have to. No regrets, because no matter the bad turns, the good turns it led to where you are right now. And yeah. Um, I think you know for. There's one thing that I could con- convey to, to, to people that I meet or people listening to this is 
recognize the beauty that you are in right now. Even if you say like, oh, I'm a sh- uh, I'm a, I hate my job, I'm in a shitty place, my apartment sucks. Yeah. But you can find the beauty within yourself. Because if you can't, then that's the real problem. But I guarantee you, you can. Uh, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through taking a walk, or um, connecting with a friend, or watching a movie by yourself. Um, do you meditate? I do, yeah, yeah. I do too. Yeah, it's so funny because I, I had a uh, somebody on, on the on the show before, and he he also meditates, and we were talking about that. And he was he was sharing with me, uh, you know, people were telling him like, how do you meditate? Like, how how do you turn your brain off? And <laughs> I my advice to people who who are interested in doing it but can't do it is, you don't go to the gym to uh, gain muscles you go to the gym to do certain amount of exercises and after those exercises the byproduct of that will be muscles or or losing weight or whatever Mm -hmm. so just concentrate on doing those exercises whether it's Mm -hmm. chin-ups or pull-ups so meditation don't worry about the end result worry about you know not worry actually that's the whole point is that you're void of worry and you're just you're breathing you're you're going into a different place Mm -hmm. Uh, everybody's different you know Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, you know, getting comfortable. You know, uh, there's for me. I don't feel like there should be rules, but for me, I, I have a timer. Oh. Um, just because you know I have my eyes closed, <laughs> so I have a timer, and I just try to. I just try to. I try to be quiet, and to a point where I can hear that you know that, 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 um, that alarm of of silence. That, so I hone in on that. And I let that take me somewhere. Um, how do you meditate? Um, I uh, I wanted to meditate because uh, I I got very sick when my dad was getting sick, and I had like terrible insomnia. I started developing a vocal injury. I had to stop singing because without sleep and like I was screaming at people who were abusing him. I was misusing my my spoke, speaking voice. It really didn't have to do with my singing voice, but um, I started doing research, preventative medicine. I don't ever want to have this again. I need to lose my stress. I don't want to be stressed out anymore. I need to sleep. How do I sleep? How am I going to sleep? And, oh, one of my friends had given me a Deepak Chopra, or asked me to buy this Deepak Chopra audiobook. And he kept mentioning Transcendental Meditation. And that how that was an avenue to uh, transcendence, enlightenment, being free of the burdens of the mind, relaxation, productivity. So I was like, transcendental meditation. I hear about this like every 10 years, somebody mentions TM. And I'm always like, oh yeah, right. And this time I was like, okay, I gotta know about this. And we have online resources. So I decided to study transcendental meditation. And I demanded a scholarship. And I got it. <laughs> and uh, now I want there to be clinical trials with meditation and Alzheimer's patients. And I'm finding that it's showing up. I would imagine there's benefits to that with people with Alzheimer's. Well, you know, David Lynch, who I'm a big fan of, yeah. he has put a lot of time, energy, and money into TM. He pretty much stopped making movies um, except for the ones that he's making about meditation. And he was training all of these soldiers who had PTSD to meditate, and the suicide rate has dropped. 
and he, he wants to teach a million children how to meditate to promote world peace. It sounds far-fetched and idealistic, but I believe it. It can, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but people are more peaceful after they meditate. They're more willing to listen to each other. They're more willing. Yeah, I've never heard of somebody ending uh, a session of meditation and wanting to pick a fight with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that that was my way of dealing with my troubles, and boy, has it changed my life also. I I think that was like in, in May 2010. I took my TM course and I've been meditating twice a day since then. And I sleep much better, I lose my temper much less, I have a pretty bad temper and you know, <laughs> I, I, I haven't, I, I used to lose it with my father and with some of the people in his life who were trying to exploit him and that all is like a thing of the past. Uh, it really, really has helped How me. do you deal with those, those situations that used to, that used to, uh, that used to rile you up, how do you deal with them now? I'm much, much more able to stop and either think or listen instead of reacting. It's like, you know, the opposite of the reactive mind and the peaceful mind. You know, I just, I, I don't feel as impatient to act out and respond to something that's bothering me. I'll step back and say, well, is that really going to be productive for me to say something, um, defensive or start crying if I'm having a fight with uh, the guy that I'm dating or you know what's the best way to handle this what's going to create the least amount of conflict or pain for both sides and really more for myself like you know of course you have to care for the other person but when you get angry you're really like causing all of these negative physical things to happen physically to your body Right. Right. And the more upset and angry your blood pressure goes up, you know, you do things to yourself that are harmful. You're hurting yourself more than you're hurting another person when you get mad. And a lot of our anger has to deal more with ourselves than the situation. Absolutely. A lot of it is I can't, I can't, I can't control this, yeah, this situation. I can't, I can't. This person's acting, behaving in a way that I don't like. Ah. If, if people engage in that kind of process more, you know. Right. I mean, so, um, before we run out of time, yeah. uh, can we get the, uh, the name of that, uh, the center again, the New York Memory Center? Oh, the New York Memory Center. Okay, yeah. the website, and I'll post this uh, for you guys. I'll post the link, but it's nymemorycenter, all one word, nymemorycenter.org. And, um, it, it's not only for dementia and Alzheimer's patients. I, I met a woman there who had been hit by a bicycle in Prospect Park and had really bad trauma to her brain, lost her memory. She was like, in her interview, she was like, poetry better than any pharmaceutical medication. <laughs> the poems wow. that we say here, the call and response, it's magic, I love this place. She was the greatest advertisement for it. And she's, you know, she's not an elderly lady. So there are people with memory problems, you know? Right. And their memories improve, and their quality of life improves. They they just opened a, They're about to open a center in Bushwick, and they have one in Park Slope. And uh, I think it would be great if there was one in every state of the United States. You know, in, in Manhattan, in the Bronx. You know, we in different parts of New York as well as other states. So.
There should be. I'm a, yeah, I'm a big believer in the New York Memory Center, and um, yeah, and I want to uh, I want to share about my movie as it gets done. If anybody wants to come yeah, to the how, fundraiser, how please can, do. Uh, how can people get in touch? If you want to plug the fundraiser, please do. Uh, I think you mentioned your performance before, but... Yeah, well, you can write to me at my website, hannahreiman.com, H-A-N-N-A-H-R-E-I-M-A-N-N.com. There's a contact page, and uh, save the date, Sunday, June 6th at 8.30 p.m. at the uh, historic 1881 Seventh Adventist uh, Church in Manhattan. It's not a religious gathering place. It's multi-denominational. They have beautiful concerts there. They have a really lovely hall, so it's, you know, it's a location for a fundraiser, and we Hopefully we'll be showing a short clip or something of the film and singing my music and the music of Joni Mitchell, which I haven't talked about at all in this chat, but that's, that's something I specialize in. And I have rights to four songs in my movie, so Joni Mitchell's like a part of my life, part of my healing. Her music healed me while I was going through this uh, sad journey. So, yeah. Great. Well, Hannah, thank you for doing this. Thank you. You're uh... You're a beautiful person. Thank you for oh, thank you for this conversation. Well, you're welcome, and I am full of admiration too that you've you know you have this platform for talking about anything that can you know reach others possibly. All right, boys and girls, stick around. Well, you have you are sticking around, so you have no choice. Adjust your earbuds. Here comes a super live performance from Hannah, and all the any audio uh, compromises are entirely my fault. Uh, anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy.
Thank you. That was. Oh. I'm gonna go and drink a case of somebody. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. 